so here we are. Sometimes we uh, do contemplative practice in the beginning. Sometimes we do it in the middle. I think today we'll do it on and off because what I have here is a whole bunch of things that in my enthusiasm for being back together after having seen you in a number of weeks, there were so many things that I wanted to talk about up to and including something I read in the New Yorker this morning. So uh, I decided this could be a potpourri of things I want to talk about. I decided to call it being a 21st century Western Buddhist, because it always has to have a name when it goes on to, um, where where is it? Oh, wait, wait, wait. What's the name of the website? Dharma Seed. Dharma Seed. Do you know that you can find all of the t- talks that all the Dharma teachers have ever given in the last 30 years on dharmaseedtapelibrary.org? And they're free. You give a donation, of course, but they're free. And uh, among other things, one of the main users of, of Dharma Seed Free Tape Library are incarcerated people. And I feel very, very good about that. So everything that... <laughs> uh, at some point, I, I I told my my late husband, I said to him, you know, there are 300 talks that I've given over the last 30 years uh, on Dharma Seed. So if I predecease you, you would have a year's worth of listening to a talk every single day if you wanted to. And he said, probably I will have listened to you enough by that time. I won't need to be listening anymore. (laughs) But there are just a lot of tapes, as there are of my friend Sharon and my colleagues at Spirit Rock. And it's a really worthy website to check out. Today, I have a lot of things that I want to talk about, and they seem disparate, but they all have to do with being a 21st century Western Buddhist. And I think what we'll do for the first oh, five minutes is uh, do a, uh, uh, a contemplative exercise. I'm deciding I'm not going to call them meditations anymore. I'm going to call them contemplative breaks that have the a particular um, uh, intention in them. Uh, uh, and uh, this is an intention, but the intention is to bring the mind to meet the body right here. Uh, because often when we get online, rushing around our houses or getting ready, and then we sit down and we dial it on and it clicks on and there we are. And I think that my own experience is that um, takes a little while for my mind to settle down uh, and be here. And maybe it does yours as well. I've been saying to people, I was away teaching in Mexico last week, and I kept saying about these kinds of breaks of contemplative pauses as being it gives the mind a chance to settle down and pull itself together. That seems like such a not scripture term. I don't think the Buddha said settle down and put yourself together. But I actually think that the the combination of concentrating 
at the same time that you keep the mind alert is settle down and put yourself together. If the Buddha were teaching now, he would say, settle down and put yourself together and stay awake. Don't fall asleep. So let's do that. Let's do that for five or eight minutes. I'll give you some instructions and then I'll leave you alone. Find a way to sit still. All the better if you can sit up, but if your body is compromised in some way, it's fine if you lie down or lounge or do whatever you need to make your body comfortable. If you haven't closed your eyes yet, look around and see that you're with, uh, at this point, 56 people. keeping you company all over the world. And then close your eyes. Sometimes I just close my eyes and sit. Sometimes I say to myself something like, here I am. Here I am now. And when I do that, it's like I, in a moment, feel how it feels to know here I am now. My whole body presents itself to me. I feel it sitting. I know it's sitting. First of all, I know it. But also, I know it because of what I feel about my body. I feel pressure on my bottom where I'm sitting. Pressure on my back where I'm leaning back on my chair. I feel my arms along my sides. I'm holding hands with myself, but that's not a requisite. You can have your hands on your thighs or wherever they're comfortable, alongside your body. But I know where they are because I feel my body in contact with my arms, wherever they are. And then if I wait, and I'll be quiet in a moment so we can all do this quietly, I'll feel my body, my breathing become the most prominent experience since there's nothing else in my body that is a stronger sensation in my mind 
if I were in pain, if I had a headache or any kind of ache in my body that might be more prominent than my breath. Since my body is at ease this morning, I feel my breath. If your breath is a compromised experience because you have some breathing difficulty or you're sick or you can just feel your whole body wherever it is. Sometimes I feel the edge of my body. I feel it getting bigger and then relaxing down and then bigger and relaxing down. And the only thing I really recognize or feel is the change of body from full of breath to empty of breath, filling with breath, emptying of breath, which I know because I feel it getting larger and then settling down. So we'll sit for five minutes and periodically say to yourself, here I am. I'll give you one further instruction after several minutes. But for the first several minutes, just feel your body and say to yourself, here I am. And be that reality.
And as you're sitting, feeling that your body is a breathing, living organism. So you could say, this is what, this is what's true with my body right now. Just for a moment, think, this is what's true of my mind right now. Just think of a word or words that could be pleased or contented or uh, worried or tense or overwrought or glad to be here or all of the above. But moment to moment, our bodies and our minds are changing. And one of the things of addressing, the obvious reason for addressing uh, the, the suffering in our lives is being attached, being aware of the ways that the mind changes moment to moment, feels hopeful, feels desolate, feels cheered, feels demoralized feels irritated and feels frightened so that we can respond to our own minds with the same compassion that we would respond to other people who said, I feel this or that or that or that, to whom we might respond and say, it's going to be all right. This moment's going to pass. Let's talk about it. Let's be with it. So see how's your mind. There's a certain way in which I think we all come here or look forward to coming here, myself certainly as well, because my mind will feel better at the end of this two hours. For one thing, it'll settle down a little bit. And the other, I will be with people who, just like me, are prepared to say life is difficult and complicated, but we're doing it. When you want to, open your eyes. Look around at all the other people who are here. We want to look at the people on the other pages. People you know, people you don't know. A lot of people who they can't see their pictures this morning. I think that some of, maybe a lot of those people are people who listen at another time and maybe it's the middle of the night. Maybe they listen on Dharma Seed later. But if you can turn yourself on so we see your picture at some point, that's great. You don't have to. And then we'll talk a little bit. I'll talk a little bit.
when I was in Mexico teaching last week, I um, I had just before I left, I'd had lunch with a friend of mine uh, in a restaurant with outdoor eating in, in San Anselmo, California, not far from where I live. And I used the, the story of that lunch with my friend to uh, make a point to the audience of people that I was teaching in Mexico, saying this is really, it's not a, it's a contemporary story, but it could have been any time. Uh, and it's really, in a sense, the story of why we work at developing clarity of awareness. Anyway, I, I met a friend for lunch and um, I hadn't seen this friend in um, well, six weeks, I think. She'd been traveling, I'd been traveling. And um, she had some, uh, I, I knew about a difficulty in her family, some thing that's come up. Everybody's family has difficulties. And I was really eager to hear from her. I, I love her and I was eager to hear how things were. We were sitting outside and talking just across the table from each other. And it was a complicated story. And I was leaning forward to try to hear her as she told me the details of what had transpired in those weeks that we hadn't seen or communicated with each other. And it was a lunchtime, so it was busy in the restaurant, but it wasn't that all loud from around us. But the restaurant is on a uh, alongside a busy street, a main boulevard. And even though it's got a high fence around it, which should be a buffer on the sound, I'm leaning forward and uh, I can hear the traffic going around because there's just a certain amount of traffic and trucks and buses. And, uh, it's not anything like New York, but on, you know, like that. So I'm leaning forward so I can hear what she's saying. And I'm really concentrating on what she's saying. And people around us are also talking louder, probably because of the traffic around. So I'm really having to concentrate. But the people around us are talking. And there's a certain amount of uh, uh, screeching of uh, brakes of um, buses that stop on that corner. So I'm really listening. And... Uh, just to try to get at what she's saying. And uh, she's bending forward. We're both really concentrating on each other. People around us are talking the street noise with occasional ambulances and that kind of thing is going on also. Ambulances or buses. And then uh, somewhere, somebody apparently nearby tried to open a car without the proper key or open, try to open somebody else's car, because you know that sound when someone has pressed a button and opened your car and you're not there and it goes beep, 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 that really loud, terrible sound. So all of a sudden I'm leaning and the sounds and the in, in there, outside, there, all of a sudden beep, 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 beep. They look at each other and I think, and I thought to myself, this is how it is. I'm trying to pay attention. And I'm just in San Anselmo. It's not in the middle of a war. It's not in the middle of anything. And I try to pay attention. It's so hard to stay tuned just in a, in a regular world situation. How about in the middle of really more 
terrible moments. People there are people who are living in bigger cities or more homeless or all kinds of situations. I thought that's really what the Buddha taught is how to stay alert to what's going on right now, not just so that we'll know what's going on, but that we'll be able to respond with compassion because we will have understood deeply what the other person is saying. Because when we do that, and this is probably the most important sentence I've said so far, when we can respond with compassion to what someone is telling us or what we're hearing or what we're learning, then we feel connected, then we feel sustained ourselves, then we feel like we're not in this life alone. And it's hard to do it. I thought to myself, the Buddha also taught for the same reason. He taught for the same reason that when we understand, really, when we get it, that other people are in pain, whether it's my friend across the table or the people in the ambulance is going around or the person whose car is now beeping because someone's breaking in or their key isn't working, that all around us there are difficult situations unfolding and then I can realize I am part of a world in which difficult situations are unfolding and people are trying to be present to the people having the difficult situations. They're trying to be compassionate. They're trying to be there. And it's hard to pay attention because there's so many distractions. Does that make sense to you? It seemed to me it's such a plain story. The story is I had lunch with my friend. But the real story is I remembered how hard it is to do the thing that we're most called to, to do, which is to stay focused on the needs of another person that you care about so that you can respond fully with compassion. Not because only it would be a nice thing to do to people, but it would be what really ends suffering in ourselves is connecting ourselves to other people. That's really the most important sentence I've said so far today. That the, really the end of suffering is not the end of troubles because you come to, my husband used to say, if you wanted a life without troubles, you came to the wrong planet because that doesn't happen here. Everybody's got problems and you know, the planet's getting crowdeder and hotter and it's got more problems. But the Dharma of the Buddha is still appropriate because it's the same thing. We're called upon. We want to know what's happening with the people who are dear to us. And it's hard to pay attention because our attention is so is so hard to focus in a complicated world. Does that all make sense to you? I thought to myself, this is the question. Um, I Lots of times when I tell stories about what's what's Buddhism all about and you tell about the well we did anyway habitually tell the story about young prince Siddhartha Gautama he went out and uh, this, uh, from his family's palace where he had not learned that there were harsh things in the world and saw an old person a sick person and a dead person and woke up to the fact that well it's a complication to be alive and it's, what do you do about that so that you can know that, that really there is old age and sickness and death and every permutation and combination of that 
And it's still possible through compassionate connections to oneself and everybody else to be content. The, the, the realization in that is to say, this is reality, this is what's happening, and I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm doing it not only with my companions, but with everybody else who are living ever. Does that make sense to you? The fact of not feeling alone. This morning when I got up, I just happened to be looking in last week's um, last week's New Yorker. And uh, I love it that now as 21st century uh, world people, we don't only have things that are labeled this is Dharma uh, to study. Dharma becomes everything that we can learn from. So, I, and it, there's a there's a piece on the poetry of John Donne. John Donne lived at the same time as Shakespeare, so it's a long time ago. And they print in this article, just to tell you, uh, the most famous line from John Donne, which you'll recognize when I read it to you. And I thought this line is the is really the whole Dharma. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. How many people have heard that before in their life? Yeah. And I, I, I wasn't sure it was, uh, I, maybe I knew it was John Dunn, but there's a whole very good article, by the way. It's called, um, it's from a, uh, uh, a series of poems called Devotions on Emergent Occasions, a series of vivid and searching reflections on mortality. They say remains as powerful as when John Donne wrote it in 1623 during a serious illness. Lying in bed, he heard church bells toll for the dying and wondered if they had rung for him. Perhaps, he said, they who are about me and see my state may have caused it to toll for me. And I know and I don't know that he wrote. And then the fact, do not ask to see who the bell tolls for, it tolls for thee, for all of us. And that message that we have different lives, all of us manifest in this lifetime, but fundamentally we are all mortal. And having taken life, we will end it. And uh, the really the teaching of the Buddha is about there is difficulty in life, not only sickness, but difficulty and causes for grief and lamentation. And But uh, his insight that we can live life fully and embrace it and enjoy it and fall in love with it and know that and be sustained that we're not alone. That's what happens to everybody. As a matter of fact, that really is the proximal cause of having 
compassion for all beings because everybody, we're in this together. Everybody who's here in this world, the people who politically vote with me or not with me, they're all having the same lives. They're all making decisions based on their understandings. They all have people that they love and people who they worry about. And to be able to have a mind that is able to reach out compassionately and connect, which I'm beginning to think is probably the, the, the word that's most important in understanding the potential of, of Dharma practice is that we connect and don't feel that we're disconnected from the whole of mankind. Everybody's mourning and dying and mourning and dying. And we are in the procession of people mourning and dying. That's just the way it is. And that we could do it with uh, delight when things are wonderful and uh, sadness when things are sad and compassion when we can be helpful. And the compassion is a really the important one because it connects us to other people and then we're not alone. It's the difference between... Um, In, in, when you study about compassion as part of the Brahma Viharas, as part of the wonderful states of the mind that is possible to cultivate, it says that the near enemy of compassion is pity. That means it looks a little bit like compassion, uh, because it involves sadness for other people, but it's really not compassion at all because pity is there are those people who are, have that poverty or they're in that war or they have that illness or they have something. And thank goodness I don't. Pity is over there. And compassion is a connection that that is different from pity. It's Everybody's got their own different things. Some people have this, some people have that, some people have this, that. But everybody is mortal and everybody cares about Mostly everybody, unless there's something very neurologically wrong with people, cares about people who are their kin or their best friends or their something. Or if they don't care about anybody, that's a really sad thing as well. But most of us care. And the, 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 the sequelae of caring is doing something on behalf of the other person. Compassion feeling for the other person, and doing something if you can do something about it. We have, uh, I've asked two people to come and be guests next uh, Wednesday when we're together, so I hope you'll come. Uh, one of them is John Namkung. And those of you who uh, have, have recently joined this group won't know that uh, John is a retired uh, school teacher in Sonoma County, California, who uh, was, he teached, he, he taught until he retired. Uh, and when he retired, uh, it, it, what happened soon after that is uh, there was uh, a, a, um, a need suddenly for the Yazidi people to 
be able to leave the country that they were in because of the strife that was happening and come to Greece. And they, it was a, uh, an exodus of people in boats coming to Greece. And John uh, bought a ticket and uh, to go and come, and he registered with an aid agency. And he went for several weeks. He went twice, actually. He'll tell you about it next week. And uh, he came to Spirit Rock. And how many people remember when John came and talked about he was going? Because we he had paid for his own trip. And uh, uh, he paid for his trip and bought his ticket and signed up with an aid agency. And then he went and came back. And then he went a second time some months later because he discovered the first time that uh, he uh, that uh, a main thing that they lacked in this huge displaced persons camp that they had, refugee camp that was in Greece, was they didn't have anything for young adults, young, you know, teenagers to do. And uh, they had enough space. So he went back a second time with equipment to build basketball courts and build two basketball courts and taught them how to play basketball. And suddenly they had a thing to do and made a big difference. And uh, then lo and behold, and he came to Spirit Rock and talked to the class and talked about how serving other people when you can makes you feel good. Recently, there was, uh, when the trouble started in um, Ukraine, uh, he bought a ticket and uh, signed up with an aid agency and then put out an email to, uh, maybe you got some of it too, because Anyway, put out an email that he was now going to uh, uh, Ukraine, to that border, and was going to do whatever he could. So he went over, and because he can, he's a good driver of cars, his job was to uh, pick up people at the border who crossed and got out of Ukraine and drive them somewhere, drive them to some people if they knew people, or drive them to... Um, drive them to the main train station so that they could go someplace else in Poland uh, once they were out of Ukraine. And uh, he met uh, one particular family and uh, sent a picture of this particular family that he said the conversation they had among other, not just with this family, but they were so grateful for him driving them. And they said, I can't believe you came all the way from California to drive us to the train station. But he, he drove many people to the train station. And now he came back and he managed to help five people there, either four or five, to get papers and transit papers and visas to come to the United States and collected money so that they could buy tickets. And those people, that family, is living in Sonoma County now. And they have an apartment rented for a year, and they have enough money to buy themselves groceries for a year. And John is coming next week to talk about the experience of helping other people as, in terms of what it does for you. And I really am beginning to think that that's the central thing that 
not only helping, but wishing for other people that they'll be well, hoping, praying for other people, whatever takes your attention away from, whatever takes my attention away from my stuff and my story liberates me from my stuff and my story and going over it and it should, it's not fair, it's not this, it's not that. If I think about other people, even if I don't go, even if I don't physically do something, making other people's cause dear to me rescues me from my own self-absorption. And I, it's really what I, I think I have learned more than anything else. Is that true? I think so. I've learned a lot of things in 40 years of practice. But more than anything else, but benevolence for other people wishing well is really lifts up the mind. One's own mind liberates it. I am just remembering. I'm sure I told you this story before, but I'll do it again. When my friend tomorrow was dying. Uh, Tamara was a mindfulness teacher, and she was living in Florida with her partner at that time. And um, so she wasn't teaching at this time. She was she was one of the founders of the New York um, uh, New York City mindfulness. Uh, what did they call it? Yeah. New York Mindful, New York Insight Center. She was one of the founders. And she moved to Florida with her partner after some time. And she took ill and she died uh, after some period of time. And uh, in the very last days of her dying, uh, it wasn't so easy to take care of her at home. So she was in a hospice. And I called her all the time, but we were good friends and we talked. There are lots of stories about that. But I called her one day and I called her one day and uh, she didn't answer the phone. So I called the nurse's station on that floor and they said, well, she's too weak to hold the phone now. So uh, I said, well, can you go in there and connect the phone and you hold the phone and I'll talk to her. Anyway, the nurse went in holding the phone to her ear. And she was either died that day or the next day. But she said, I remember the conversation because she said, uh, this is so hard, Sylvia. When is it going to end? I said, well, sweetheart, it's going to end soon. You know, it's going to end soon. Uh, but you're doing great. And she said, well, yeah. she said, oh, anyway, I, you know, whatever we said. Then she said, um, I'm so weak, I said, I know. And then she said, well, wait a minute. She said, the nurses are fixing my um, my bed. They're tucking in, the, they're refixing it and tucking the sheets around the bottom. And then she stops talking to me and starts to talk to them. And she's saying, thank you so much. You took such good care of me. You were really wonderful. I am so grateful for all the care that you gave me. And then she said to me, the nurses here are so wonderful. They've been so kind. They were so great to me. I really, really, they eased my stay here so much. Anyway, that's it. And she died that day or the next day. 
And she, of all my friends and all my colleagues who were teachers, was the one I thought always had most mastered the the wisdom of uh, Mudita of uh, really appreciating the well-being of other people and uh, really manifesting gratitude for them and their care as a way of, I don't think she was doing it in a way, she said, oh, I'll do that because it'll lessen my own pain. But it does. It takes the 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 focus of I'm dying in this minute away from I'm dying, oh, woe is me, to wow, the nurses here are so great and they were so wonderful for me and I'm thanking them for it. And it, it really connects in that loving way that I think in the end is what's ultimately redemptive for all of us. I think probably if we took a poll and said, how do you want to die? When we do, whenever it is, I want to die holding somebody's hand and saying, I love you and thank you very much. And probably you do too, because I can't think of something that would be kinder to me and to them. Um, can you? Anyway, how did I get to that? Just a second. I have to remember how to get to that, how I got there. That the that what I've been thinking about is that the redemptive the redemptive move when we say the Buddha taught the end of suffering didn't teach the end of pain didn't teach the end of disappointment I would have wanted more I think most of us if we're not in terrible pain we'd want more why not it's interesting um, my my late husband my husband who died year and a half ago, was um, spent a lot of time watching uh, uh, CNN and MSNBC. And uh, it, was, it was a little hard because I was spending all the time with him. And it's been difficult news to watch so intensively for the last several years. But I said, you know, I said, he said, no, I love it. He said, it's like watching a, a whodunit. Are they going to get the bad guys? And are the bad guys winning or are the good guys winning? And he said, I always want to see what's going to happen tomorrow. He said, it's like watching a thriller. You want to see what's going to happen next. And so it's like, um, anyway, he watched plenty of that. Um, and when he died, it was mostly, I love you. I had a good life. To connect in a loving way with a partner or the life or one's friends or one's children. To, but I think the operative word is to connect, to not to do it alone, to not to feel like you're alone. No man is an island, a continent unto itself. How does that whole thing go? No man is an island. Entire of itself, every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Anyone's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We're always part of this 
great cycle of borning and dying and borning and dying. And to know that is to not to feel disconnected. It's just all happening. I think I said that we would sit a little bit more and we should do that and let John done and uh, Tamara and um, I guess I started that whole thing because I wanted to say, but there's one more thing to say. I told you that story about sitting with my friend Barbara in the, in the, in the restaurant and leaning forward so I could hear what she had to say so we could connect. And all these things that are just part of daily life. It's not a, Marin is not a war-torn community at this time and not in any danger and sitting in an outdoor eating place. But that I'm leaning forward trying to connect and she's trying to connect because all these things are going on around us. It's hard to stay focused. And I think that would be the story about would be the second line of saying what's this Buddhism all about. It's about trying to connect empathically with other living beings, not even just human beings, with other living beings, because that sustains the heart through its own living, through its own changes, through its own death, and finding out that it's hard to stay focused. So we learn techniques for staying focused. And... Um, among the techniques are the techniques for focusing the attention on the body and on the breath. Sometimes even on change, now this is happening, now this is happening, now this is happening. So I think we'll sit a little bit more. That's what I thought we would do. And because I have some more to say, and then maybe you can talk about it too. Um, but let's go back to sit in a comfortable way. I think also sometimes when there's a lot of information that comes in, it's good that it settles down. I find more and more I'm suggesting to people as a meditation, not especially focusing on the breath, to focus on a phrase. The phrase that I, one of the phrases that I've been using a lot is, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It's a long phrase, but... It's, I find very helpful, I say to myself, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. When I sit and do that, you say, oh, so many words, but 
I, it takes me longer than that to take a breath. I breathe in and I'm thinking, may all be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I still have breath to breathe out. And then I wait for the next breath and I say it again. I wait for the next breath and I say it again. I might do that 10 times or more or less. And after a while, my mind is in a groove with that and it does it. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I just suggest that you try it. It was the uh, thing that um, Mahagosananda, the mantra that Mahagosananda, who I met, was died now, who I met in the 1990s and was the senior prelate, senior Buddhist monk in Cambodia, Cambodia, known for his tremendous erudition. He spoke nine languages, was a very big scholar, and also a wonderful teacher of peacefulness, would say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, over and over again. A friend of mine who had met him at a conference the year before I met him said, uh, he didn't say very much. He only said, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. But when you think about it, that's much. That's a really big much. That if you could do that and mean it, that would be a great thing. So let's try that. And here's an idea when, when maybe you've done it five times or ten times and you think, wait a minute, it's getting tedious. You don't have to do one phrase on every single breath. See what happens when you say it and say it. And then you just do the breath and then you just do the breath and do the breath with the intention again and see if it's different. Do it maybe two times, three times and then sit again quietly. Pay attention. I'll ask you later, was it different if you did it a lot or a little? Was it helpful? What changed in your body and what changed in your mind? But let's do that for a little bit. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. We'll release it a little bit, maybe about 20 minutes.
When you're ready, open your eyes. I think it's hard to stay paying attention for 20 minutes. Was it hard? Mine go here and there. What do you want to say about that? Jackie, did you want to say something? You have to push your button. Uh, or Carlito call on you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, yes. So, um, 
oh, well, actually, I, I didn't put my hand up. I was doing the so-so action. <laughs> when you <laughs> asked, it was difficult. <laughs> what did you yeah. experience with that? Um, well, I had, um, I really loved the mantra and I, I, I really tried to stay with it. And I initially, my reaction mainly was to the word of suffering. May all beings uh, come to the end of suffering. Cause lately I've been feeling like I battle against suffering, but if I embrace it, then I can move kind of past it. So I was just kind of going through my own relationship with suffering. Um, and then, and then I drifted into, you know, my to-do list of the day. But just towards the very end, I had this very profound connection with, it was that heightened sense of just really feeling connected with the entire universe of beings. It, it was quite, quite a beautiful moment. Um, and I'm just grateful for your words today around bringing us into connection with others and that we are not um, on an island alone. Um, I live on an island, so <laughs> so it's easy for me to kind of feel that isolation. Um, but it, it was just a beautiful arc. And um, I'm always fascinated by the 20-minute journey where often when I come to that 20-minute mark, something, some, some kind of wonderful shift happens. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying. I think it's a really important discovery that... Uh, that it's in a way it's a rescue of one's own from feeling I myself am you know I'm in a bad way I'm, my mind is in a slump uh, I mean and we do sometimes feel that but to suddenly feel um, I am and other people are it doesn't mean that I, the sadness that's part or the dismay or whatever part of my own suffering goes away it's it's there uh but to begin to put it in the context of it's one of the things that people share is uh, and suffering i i am just reminding myself and everybody else suffering doesn't mean uh stuff because we all have stuff all the time that the mind should be not in an aversive reaction with the stuff that shouldn't be happening i shouldn't be i should have been over this uh, why am I troubled with this? And people have so much more stuff. Everybody's got stuff. And the thing is that we have uh, an aversive relationship to the stuff. Uh-oh, here comes my sadness, here comes that. To be able to say, yes, I am sad about this. I am sorry about what's going on with the politics. I am sorry about the troubles in uh, Ukraine. I'll do what I can. But not to have this, this, the particular meaning of dukkha in terms of how the Buddha meant it is the extra anguish in the mind from making it a mistake that it's like that. It's not a mistake. Everything happens in the world and some of them are sad things and difficult things and outrageous things. So thank you. I'm going to go back and put on everybody so I see them all together. There we go. Um, does anybody else have something to say? I have, I thought of one story that uh, just came to me while I was sitting there, and I thought I. Uh, but anyway, but somebody may have something to say, and I'll tell you the story, and then you say it. But in case you're waiting to say something, anybody had. Well, I'm going to tell you the story then. 
maybe I actually did sometime, that um, I, I'm thinking uh, when I remember this, it makes me less likely to get distracted by, I usually remember it in the middle of being distracted by something or other. Um, a long time ago, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we could know because it's coincident with the with the beginning of the cable networks. And the story is I was in Aspen, Colorado uh, with my husband and we were taking a bus from Aspen to Grand Junction, which is the other side of the mountains, uh, to get a charter plane back from Grand Junction to San Francisco because it was a special plane that ran that route in the wintertime for skiers who were going to ski in, in uh, Aspen, which I was. And so I had a chance to listen to a conversation for a long time. It's so interesting because I was sitting in front of two people. Sometimes I think, hey, how could it be? There's so many times in my life that I was sitting and overhearing somebody saying something that was very important. I'm sure we all do. But this one, I remember I was sitting and uh, there were two men sitting in the two seats behind me. So I heard what they were saying, but I never saw what they looked like. I didn't turn around to look at them, especially after I listened. And they were talking about, uh, one was telling the other about his new job uh, as some organizer of the new network, uh, CNN, that was just starting then. And he was telling his seatmate that uh, there was a very exciting concept because now it was going to change television altogether. Because instead of having to uh, hire talent like storytellers and actors and actors and actresses and singers or whatever people did, to have different programs on the, on the TV that the, they wouldn't have to pay for talent anymore because it wasn't going to be those kinds of dramas or plays. or It was going to be just news. He said, you see, we won't have to hire talent. The news is going to be the talent. The news is going to be the contact. We won't have to hire writers. You know, we'll just have, we'll just tell the news all the time. And um, they were talking about that. And I remember, I remember overhearing that. And uh, that the news is going to be the talent because people are really interested in following the news. Subsequently, I came back to San Francisco and re-started uh, re, uh, the rest of my life and going along. And one day I was doing some chores and I don't know why, but I now had my television turned on to CNN, which was the new all news channel. And they were following the news of the uh, uh, of a hurricane that was coming to Florida. It was in the uh, out and in the Caribbean, and it was on its way in the direction of Florida. And in in the way of news, they were showing you maps of the hurricane coming and what the the uh, uh, weather people were projecting from it. And I was going about my business and. At some point, they said, well, we have to stop for a um, a commercial break now, but uh, don't go away. Stay tuned for the latest updates on Hurricane Sarah or whatever it was that was coming up through the Caribbean. And I listened to that and I thought to myself, wait a minute, 
I don't live anywhere near Florida. What do I need? They, they, they just say, stay tuned so you don't miss the latest updates on the hurricane coming to Florida. And I suddenly thought to myself, you know, I'm 3,000 miles from Florida. I don't need to know the latest updates. Not to say I don't mind about anybody has troubles, you know, certainly. I say them to, I actually remember that I had friends in Florida that I would subsequently call after the hurricane and say, how did you do and manage? But that I didn't have to stay tuned for the updates on the hurricane in Florida. And that what I had gotten in the habit of is being ensnared or uh, what's a better word, captured by the idea that there was an imperative that I should stay focused on the hurricane in Florida. And in a certain way, it really kidnaps the mind so I could follow the hurricane in Florida. I was thinking about it recently because uh, I, I remarked while I was in Mexico for a week there wasn't any access to television. Of course, everybody's got their phones. Everybody knows what's happening here and there. But it's not possible to get involved with going and looking at television, unless you want to watch the television on your phone or something, and you get coverage. But there isn't any good coverage in, you know, in a rural Mexico. But I thought to myself, I pretty much have, uh, I have to be really more zealous than sometimes I really, someone says, did you hear the hearings or did you hear the this or did you hear the that? Did you have the reruns of the hearings? And the imperative in the mind to look at something that's going to outrage my mind again, and which is antithetical to my wish that my mind be alert and available to help me do um, valuable connections with my friends and the people I know who I really need to be in, in contact with. And I think about the fact that when I, I even uh, making a quick segue here, if I, one of the, one of the new habits I have is when I get into a, um, I go into a, um, a restaurant or a, or a Starbucks or a Pete's to have some coffee and sit down. And I am waiting for a friend, say, and I have a rule that I cannot take out my phone and start going down it and seeing who's there. Now you get in there, you sit down and you take out your phone to check. Did anybody call? Did anybody say anything? And I don't do it. This is one of my rules. It's a new, um, you know, precept. Do not read your mail in a public place unless there's something crucial that you're waiting like somebody's somebody's a half hour late and you have to see where they are then you do it but otherwise you're early or they're not late i wait and i look around and i look at the people it's one of my specific um rules about myself because i don't want to stuff more in than i need and i want to have that possibility before my friend arrives who's late to look around and see who's there and think to them, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. If I do that for five minutes before my friend arrives, then my my mind is all in a in a in a shape to meet them with an open heart and an interested mind, and not all whipped up with what did this one say and what did that one say and can you believe it what that one said? And unbelievable. 
So that's one of my new rules. I'm really doing that rule. Uh, <laughs> why don't you try the rule? And then you can tell me next week how the rule goes for you. No reading the mail gratuitously in a public place. <laughs> so, uh, but at the time, I and, and also particularly because I remember these two men behind me 30 years ago say, we're going to capture people's attention by making the news sensational. And they'll just watch that all the time. And uh, the reason is they're not trying to let people be up on the latest news. They're trying to have enough people watching the news so that they can sell advertising time on the TV stations. It's not just to put out the news. The, 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 what runs TV stations is people running ads on them. And uh, I know because I look a little bit that the same ads are on all the different channels that cover politics, the ones on the right, the ones on the left, the ones presumably in the middle. It's the same ads. And we are only one. They're all for they're all for medicines. We are one of two countries in the whole world that allow medicines to be advertised on TV. Did you know that there's only two countries that allow pharmaceuticals to be advertised on TV? And uh, that's a whole other story. But I really am trying, that story about I don't check my mail in the next second, is I'm trying to keep my mind as present as it can be to wait for my next friend to arrive. And that's another way of saying that I would tell that story if I wanted to say, since I am not um, uh, living in a cloistered environment and I'm not a monastic where I can spend large amounts of time uh, in contemplative practice, I really am eager to find things to do that don't stir up my mind worse than they are just by life itself. So not filling up every second, I'll catch up on my mail and what did they say? Um, what happened when, what would you like to say? We have 20 minutes left and I hope you will have commentary on all the things that I said and particularly what happened to you in 20 minutes of may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. A while ago, I saw Jeff with his hand up. What happened to Jeff? There's Barbara. Did, were you meaning to talk, Barbara? I don't know what a check mark means. I think she's just agreeing with you. So where is Jeff? I don't see him either. And he had his... He, in front of a beautiful tropical sunset. Where? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, there you are. And you were going to say something. Oh, no, I wasn't. I was actually trying to, going to withhold. I was going to withhold my wisdom from the group, but uh, since you insist. Uh, <laughs> um, so the 20 minutes, um, and it's, it happens to be the second time I've sat today. Um, and the experience is very much the same. Um, and I expect it will be till early November. Uh, you know, I do uh, a lot of outreach for um, political causes and, and parties that I believe in. And I have made <clears throat> in excess of a thousand phone calls um, since early this spring in an effort to get out the vote. 
And, um, uh, and so there's that, I'm, you know, may all beings be well and happy and come to the end of suffering. God, remember that idiot in Georgia I talked to? Mm. Oh, may all beings be well and happy and come to the end of suffering. And then I, I recently, uh, I don't know if you can really see it, but I, I just had a, a small domestic um, accident with my thumb. And you know that phrase, it sticks out like a sore thumb? I know where that comes from now. Mm. You know, every time I touch something with my thumb, I get a little shock of pain. And so I thought about that too. May I be willing, so on and so on. And um, and then your your early thing about there's always stuff and how it keeps seems to just keep going and going uh, until it doesn't anymore. Um, so I'm just about to turn 70 and I have I have in my mind this history of things being better sometime and constantly getting worse. And maybe it's just uh, I'm afraid of what's coming out maybe 10 years from now, let's maybe 20, let's hope. Um, or maybe maybe it's that there's some facts to it. Um, so that that. But then we're advised by great teachers to be aware of the temporary nature of all things and that uh, there's a period at the end of this long sentence. <laughs> not just what I'm saying, but I'm talking about my life. And the last thing I'll say is in the chat, um, I have put the donation address for World Central Kitchen. As, as I say in the little piece above it, as Buddhists, we can't support or defend war, but by God, we can give them a hot meal. Mm -hmm. so that might be a, a, way, a way to help. Um, so it's a delight to see you, and uh, thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Judy. So, wait a minute, I'm looking on my, I don't have, oh, I do have a chat. Are there things in the chat? Oh, there is. Jeff, also the the the, the link, uh, the link for uh, World World Central Kitchen. Um, and he says a hot, healthy meal for any who is hungry is, I think, in line with ethical, active Buddhism. I think we all think that. Uh, I. And in the last decade, whenever I've heard uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama think, speaking, he has made it a point of saying, I'm not interested when I meet somebody and whether or not they're a Buddhist, um, whether I'm interested in whether or not they're an ethical person. And uh, I like that very much. I mean, in this small world um, where I think we are increasingly post-parochial, um, they um, that's that's more and more important. Uh, it used to be, are you with this or are you with that? Uh, and I don't I don't think people think that so much anymore. I hope I hope. What else do people want to bring up? We talked about a lot of things this morning, and I was hoping that people would have conversation about it. I see Barbara has her hand up. Barbara, Barbara, go. Oh yeah, there's a hand up. 
I just thank you so much. Every time I listen to you, it's like, shoo, and that makes me feel wonderful. So, but the other piece that that I guess that came up in that meditation for me was, um, I would get interrupted in just remembering wonderful people in my life and being so grateful for them. So I don't always think that it's bad when your mind kind of goes off into whatever it's, it's all part of what, what's in you and what, what needs to come out. So um, I just, thank you, Sylvia. I'm glad you're going to be here two more weeks because we can listen to you then. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Barbara. You know what? That thing that nothing's nothing particular is supposed to happen to you while doing that but something is supposed to change because you are changing the the flora and fauna of the mind you are making the mind uh, a, a an open space for thinking about anything one of the things that people learn i'm looking around to see if i have a a mala right here. I don't use a mala just in my daily life, but I have malas, those eight, those 108 bead things. And I used to use them more than I do now to count off if I am do, if I am sitting and maybe doing well wishes that has 108 beads. I would think to myself, okay, I'm going to wish well to 108 people. And you can feel with your eyes closed where the big bead is or where the beginning of it is. And then I would think, um, I would I would say the names in my mind. Sumor was my, my husband. And then the names of my children. And then as they married, the names of, it was interesting to me that I have, I have four children. I would say Michael, Elizabeth, Peter, and Emily. Then I would say Michael and Sarah and Peter and Emily. I would put in people that my children got connected to. And uh, so you have a you have a certain litany that you say, and my grandchildren, and then my my cousins, and my next door neighbors, or whatever, and other people. And 108 is a big number. And I would I would uh, either do the beads, or I would do the beads, and I would do 108 breaths. So on on each one. I would do a move the bead, take a breath, and say somebody else's number because that's sort of a little bit after a while, like um, uh, patting your head and rubbing your stomach. I mean, you have to really be thinking about what you're doing, and uh, it makes the mind alert because it makes it like a game. Can I really do it? But it also that going through my whole list of people is a very good thing because all of a sudden. Maybe I say somebody's name to myself and my mind has a little bit of a glitch in it, a little bit of a err. It doesn't go so easily. And then I realize why is it stumbling over that name? Because probably I didn't like something that they said or I was feeling bad about some way that they did this or that. That I wasn't actively thinking about. Maybe it happened a week ago or two weeks ago, but I didn't finish with realizing that I had put a demerit next to their name in my heart. I'd really like to suggest it to you, see how it works. 
because I don't want to have people with demerits in my heart. When I leave this life, I want to do it with everybody without a demerit. And usually when I, when I, uh, I haven't said demerit in a hundred years. Do you know what a demerit is? If you're a school teacher, you know what a demerit is. It's what they write, the preacher says, just for that, I'm giving you a demerit. Like it's the opposite of a merit. <laughs> so if you have so many demerits, you get a lower grade. But then if I find there's a demerit in my, my, in my mind over so-and-so, and I think, why is that there? Is it, uh, then you remember, well, two weeks ago, she was supposed to do this, and she didn't do that, da, 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 whatever. And it's always some stupid thing, you know, that's inconsequential. Then, but you bring it up, and you say, well, that's nothing. And she meant well, or whatever. Well, she didn't mean well, but I don't have to be carrying that around. So it's a mind cleanser. And uh, uh, if you have uh, young children or grandchildren, you don't have to be a Buddhist to have a mala. Uh, I, I, with them, uh, individually, as they were growing up, I would sit with someone on my lap and I'd say, "Okay, let's do this. Let's. This is a. This is a good wish. Uh, um, this is a good wish game, or it's a good wish time." And every time we move a bead, we'll say a wish. So we'll wish, may Uncle Michael be happy, may Auntie Liz be happy, may this one be happy, may that one be happy. And they got the hang of it. And then they would do their friends on them. And it's a wonderful thing. First of all, it's not to, you know, bring up Buddhists or, you know, indoctrinate somebody. It's to habituate, it's to let your children or your grandchildren know that you're interested in wishing well, that wishing well is a fun thing, that wishing well is something that you do while you sit on your grandmother's lap. Uh, it's a nice thing to do with them. It's a nice thing if you're on, re, re, uh, uh, on re, retreat somewhere and the day is long, you can say, well, twice a day, I'm gonna do a whole uh, mala of wishes for people. As it wakes up the mind, you have to think of a new person for each wish. And the, 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 it's not to have a game. It's uh, to habituate the mind to well-wishing. I actually find that that's what's happening to my mind. I discover it. I've been discovering it. I think I've said so. And I always hope that I say it in a way that doesn't sound at all, you know, like, yeah, yeah, look what I'm doing. But I notice that having done that enough, that it's starting to do it by itself without my sitting with the mala. That if I suddenly think a thought about somebody, I wasn't so nice that she said that. My mind cringes that I'm thinking that thought and finishes it right then. Well, it wasn't so nice, but you know, she's probably having an off day. It does it by itself, or I can certainly understand it because this or that happened. My mind is starting on its own after 40 years to correct itself as it's about to gossip, or it's about to think a not good thought on somebody. I, I see it dissolving, really. And I think to myself, this is good because one of the names for what we do, this whole practice, which sometimes goes under the rubric of Vasudhi Maga, the Visuddhimagga means 
the path of purification. And I think it is a path of purification of ill will towards oneself or towards anybody else. And it's not because someone's going to check us at the end and say, well, you failed or you passed the test or did you purify your heart? But because if my heart is purified, I'm a happier person. That's really why. It's not nobody's going to tell me when I die. You died, you finished the job of purifying your heart. It'll mean that whenever I finished it, I started to have a completely loving heart. And I'd like to do that before the end. I've been saying about I want my mind, I want to habituate my mind in such a way that it becomes Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, which is the same kind of a thing to say. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is a place where people go. And they're not frightened about it. They feel comfortable there. I would like people to feel comfortable. We'll know that I am holding them in warmth or sweetness or goodwill or tenderness, which I really am doing. I mean, I hope I'm doing it for them, but I'm also doing it for me because then my mind would not be brittle or irritable, or embittered. Does that make sense to you? That seems to be the whole thing that we're talking about. And it's taken me 20 years to get to say that it is the whole thing that we're talking about. And you say about people practicing, I'm practicing this or that. It's not what you do, but what are you trying to accomplish by what you do? doesn't matter that, you know, you sit this long or do walking meditation or do this meditation or, or contribute to wonderful organizations that feed people. I mean, it does matter if you do all those things. But it's not about how well you do things, but how much it accomplishes in terms of um, tenderizing the mind. That sounds so funny. I always think of there was some... Uh, <laughs> a long, long time ago, a product went on the market. I was an adolescent called a meat tenderizer. I don't remember what the name of it was. And everybody was tenderizing away. Somebody who's older might recognize. Then they realized that um, um, it's not good for you or it irritates a lot of people. Do you know what the name of it was? Anybody remembers what the name of it was? Uh, it was a spice and people were, it's, um, I don't remember. Anyway. Brahmini put MSG. Is that what you're referring it's to? MSG. It's MSG. Thank you, Brahm. Because I, I don't have my chat on. <laughs> it is MSG. And it had another name of accent, it was called, I think, accent. And everybody was accenting their food. But um, it's some people can eat it just fine, and other people it irritates their nervous system. So anyway, but I'm trying to tenderize my heart so it does. Um, in the book of Exodus, which is the story of uh, Moses 
leading the Israelites out of Egypt. He keeps saying the problem is that the Pharaoh had hardened his heart. So we want not to have Pharaohs that harden our heart in us, against us, or against anybody. Anybody want to say something? Oh, beautiful. I see Michelle. Michelle has her hand up. Oh, Michelle. Hi. I'm really hoping my dog doesn't bark during this. Um, so I just want to, first of all, thank you because I just, you, who you are in the world to me, just your, the way you communicate and your, just your spirit is, is really means a lot to me. So I just want to say that. Um, I found myself, so, you know, with the mantra in, in saying that, repeating that where I first kind of went is my father-in-law was diagnosed with liver cancer three weeks ago. I'm so sorry. yeah. And it's, he's, he's really not doing very well. And so, you know, the sentence feel, um, come to the end of your suffering. I just, I, I was like, but I'm not ready for him to come to the end of his suffering. And so that's something I think that was a little challenging for me because it's so new. You know, I've had other people where I understand, you know, I want, have wanted them to come to the end of their suffering, yeah. but I'm not ready for him to come to the end of the suffering because he's just now starting things, starting immunotherapy and stuff. Um, but I, he's just not doing very well. And I just don't know that he's going it, to, it's, it's going to be a rough one. Um, so there was that. And so I was doing that. And then I was kind of going out into, you know, the universe and all of that. And then I went into like, again, like someone said, my to-do list. <laughs> and then I was going through like a conversation I'd had with somebody where it, it was fine, but I started creating that whole thing of like, well, maybe they interpreted it this way. And then I'm responding to them in my head of like, if they had responded that way, how I would now respond to them. Mm -hmm. I was having that all. And so then I'm like, just go back to, to the mantra. And so I'm doing that. And then I'm like realizing, I'm like, I'm creating most of the suffering. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and I was trying to turn that to myself. Like, may I be peaceful and happy and free of suffering too. So that was my experience for all of So listen, Michelle, I think, uh, first of all, um, I'm uh, sorry for your father-in-law and, um, and for your husband and all the family. And um, may his course be um, as comfortable as possible. And may the, may the new drugs do something, because they sometimes do. Um, and when you said at the end that I am responsible, uh, there's one lovely line and one story about the Dalai Lama as a young Dalai Lama, where um, he's learning the Four Noble Truths uh, from his teachers. And he says, uh, first noble truth is that there's suffering in life. And I don't remember what he says as a second noble truth, but they correct him and they say, no, 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 you have too much ego in that. Do it again. The second noble truth is that uh, we add to our suffering uh, by how we respond to the pain in our lives. So he thinks about it for a while. And then he says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And I always love that line because I think... That's an amazing, who knows if he really said it, but it's part of the story. 
But it's an amazing thing for an eight-year-old to say, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. It's an amazing thing for a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old. We mostly think it's other people who are the cause of our suffering, but I am the cause of my suffering because of the habits of my mind. Is a very important uh, perspective, so I'm glad you have that. And I'm glad you're here. Thank um, you so much. I'm glad you're here. Thanks. And Victoria wanted to say something. Yes, thank you, Sylvia. Um, it's always so wonderful for, you, uh, for us to have you here. I'm sorry there's a man um, putting a roof on my house, so <laughs> I'm sorry about the noise. It's good to have a roof. <laughs> a roof over my head. Um, I I just love this subject. I think it's so important. And um, I just wanted to share something that I heard last weekend, which was very beautiful. Um, I was in the retreat with Christina Feldman, and she said um, towards the end of the retreat, and I don't remember in what context, but but it was so, it really gripped me, and I've been thinking about it ever since. She said, I have made a resolution that I will not have any more neutral people in my life. And at first I thought, oh yes, that's good. You know, you have your friends and your enemies, no one's neutral. (laughs) And then she went on to say, she said, I live in a very small town. And she said, you know, I just see the people at the supermarket and the postman and, you know, the people in the shops. And she said, I have decided those are not neutral people. I'm going to make friends with those people. I'm going to know who they are and I'm going to care about them. And so that we're all connected. And she was saying how she started to do that um, during the pandemic because she only left her house every 10 days or something to, you know, to do her necessary shopping. And I realized how in terms of tenderizing the heart that for me personally, anyway, that's um, the most powerful sort of um, medicine in a way, or or tenderizer, um, because the neutral people, we we have the tendency, especially in cities like New York, not to even make eye contact, that's considered polite. Mm -hmm. And so I just love this idea of us all being together. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's easier to love people that we love than to love the stranger that sort of is, is neutral, like in meta practice, we have the neutral person. <laughs> so the idea that Christina um, made that a resolution, no one will be neutral in my life ever again, like that. I just think that's so fabulous. I just wanted to share that. Thank I love you. that. I love that. I love that. I'll remember that, that Christina said. I'll probably use it. <laughs> I'm Roberta Rifka, how are you? Hi, you know, I have a lot of noise here. So I put what I was going to say in the chat for you. You can read it out loud. Oh, well, it's lovely. And now I'm reading it in the chat. The phrase, don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. Rather, you open your hand, open heart, open hand. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, And thank you all very much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Um, And I look forward to it a lot. And I'll see you next week with, uh, I, I think at this point, my two very wonderful guests. So. We'll talk about the pleasure of being able to be helpful to other people. And I hope you'll think about examples of that in your life, because I'll ask you about that. And uh, may you have a good week.